this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by us and Book Riot Insiders. If you're not sure what Book Riot Insiders is, it's basically Booktopia and you are invited to hang out with us there. You'll be able to wishlist upcoming releases you're dying to read, get exclusive podcasts and newsletters, enter to win swag and giveaways that are only for insiders. We open up we open up epic level spots every month where you can hang out on Slack with the insiders and the Book Riot staff and the novel level subscribers get the first crack at those. So get on in there. You'll also have access to the new release index, which is curated by Liberty Hardy, my co-host over on all the books. It'll help you keep track of the most exciting upcoming books. Book Riot Insiders is Booktopia. You're invited. So go to bookriot.com slash insiders to find out more. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 252. We're recording on Friday, March 16th, 2018. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Is it springing there? Oh, yeah. I'm in, I was just going to say, like, I have a mm. case of the Fridays and it's springing here. <laughs> it was 60 and sunny yesterday. I walked my dog under like a blue sky oh, in the nice. park. It's a little less springy today, but it's like spring has arrived in my soul. It's going to rain all weekend, but, but it's spring in my heart now. And it's, it's feeling like a Friday to me. Yeah. It's, um, March madness this weekend, which always feels like the first spring for me. And then the kids have spring break. Everything has a spring in it, spring in your step, uh, spring in your mattress, spring in the air. There's just springs everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have another spring in my soul because my um, alma mater, the Loyola Ramblers, won their first round game last night in March Madness. I saw that. That was delightful. Um, it's very exciting. I, and then I realized that the Loyola colors are the Gryffindor colors, which just makes so much <laughs> sense. <laughs> so my kids are filling out brackets. or They filled out brackets. Ames has been watching basketball and, and Rowan watches us and sometimes. And Ames is what, he's seven, just about to be six, seven? Six, just about to be seven. He's Rowan's six. just about to be five. And Rowan picked based on mascots. And I'd like you to know that your Ramblers were selected through the first round. Um, oh, good. By both children, both and both Michelle and I brackets got it wrong. I'm so sorry to the Jesuits. <laughs> uh, we, I should have never have doubted you. Well, you'll pay but, for that in eternity. That's fine. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the only, the wages of, the wages of uh, uh, undervaluing our our hell for all time. Um, so that's that's the show. I hope you all out there having some spring in your stuff. Go Jayhawks. Let's do our first sponsor. Sometimes I lie. I, we did this spot before, and you know what's funny? I said that the landing page was really great, and that was enough. People clicked on it and sent us email saying, that landing page is really great. <laughs> oh, yay. Good so, job, So good job, nerds. Um, I appreciate you very much so. So the book is called Sometimes I Lie. It's by Alice Feeney. And here's the synopsis. My name is not Amber Reynolds, but this character, I'm I'm doing the the bit. I'm doing the bit here. So my name is Amber Reynolds. There are three things you should know about me. I'm in a coma. My husband doesn't love me anymore. And sometimes I lie. Sometimes I lie will be your next book obsession after The Woman in the Window. A.J. Finn himself calls it marvelous, a provocative true or false thriller. And behind closed doors, author B.A. Paris says, sometimes I lie is gripping 
don't miss out on the next big psychological thriller. And if you do want to see the bleeding edge in book homepage uh, landing pages, go click on the link in the show notes to Sometimes <laughs> I Lie. It's really beautiful here. And we did a giveaway for it. Uh, I don't think it, I don't know if it's still open. You can go check. But a lot of interest in this one. A lot you could tell just by the number of people entering the giveaway gotta, that I you they, they get love the, the landing pages getting people. Mm-hmm. So there we are. Okay, we get to do our favorite kinds of follow-up, Sherman, Alexi, and Ali, uh, Harper Lee follow-up. It's our favorite things to talk about right <clears throat> now. Let's see. We've got a couple. Let's do Let's do one nice follow-up first. Okay. We'll just start because we all talked recently. Right. I was already recently. To, to take the pill, but oh, fine. Yeah, I just want to, I just need a little something sweet. All right. So all right. Uh, we talked recently about Reese Witherspoon working to adopt Celestine's book, Little Fires Everywhere, and news broke this week that um, Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington will be making the show at Hulu. Hulu Mm. won the rights after an intense bidding war, which is right and proper because this is an excellent book and it's going to be great to see on TV. So it's going to be a Hulu original and we don't know when yet, uh, but hopefully in the next year or so, that's going to be great to see. And awesome. Congratulations. Oh, I'm ready. Um, I think I don't care about adaptations anymore. Really? Like, well, this is borderline. I like Celeste. I like Little Fires Everywhere. Am I going to watch this? I don't know. I don't get. I don't do Hulu, so I probably won't watch it. Mm. So I'm, I'm suddenly like, unless it's mm. unless it's a, it's a Mount Rushmore book for me. There's so many adaptations. Like adaptation news, I'm kind of out on. I, I don't know. I may, maybe know, the, I got adaptation fatigue. I'm kind of on the opposite end of that. I'm historically better at watching slash just more interested in watching adaptations of things I haven't read. <laughs> like, um, I was going to watch big little lies mm. anyway, but I had just decided randomly to read it. Um, so that like, that was fine. I will watch for sure a Gilead series. If that ever, well, gets that's what made. I'm saying. Wait, poke me <clears throat> when it's Gilead. Wait, yeah, you know, but, nudge usually, me when it's but, Gilead. but also like I would avoid, I don't know. I would avoid m- a movie version of most of my, Mount Rushmore hmm. books, but things that like, like if I hadn't read little, I'll probably watch this because I really liked little fires everywhere. I think Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington are going to do great hmm. by it. But if like, if I hadn't read it, but everyone that I know had read it and said it was great, I think at this point I would like skip it and then just watch the show. Cause yeah. I like to just have one version of a thing in my head. Um, I'm interested in literary source material leading to shows, but so often it changes that it doesn't even matter anyway. Like I'm loving the magicians on the sci-fi network. I think I would have been into it if I had never read the books. Mm. Um, I'm going to watch Fahrenheit 451 on HBO, but I expect it to be really that one counts. That one passes. Well, it's the the equivalent of the the lost book. Now I I think I have a new Meridian that needs to be, (laughs) Uh, past okay. for me to care. Uh-huh. Remember, it was the Nazi witch occult um, mm-hmm. secret library for missing books. Yes. I, I think I don't know what my over. I don't know what my um, uh, water level is that to, to get me to, to come out from my deep layer in the bottom of the ocean of caring about TV <laughs> things. I, I think it's. I think Gilead Plus. I guess. Yeah. Okay. So I guess one good t- test would be um, Sleeping Giants. Sleeping Giants gets made into a movie. Or a TV show? Mm. Do I care? I don't. Borderline, borderline. But like our listeners care. A lot of book people would care. This is our show, Rebecca. They don't. They don't. Have, we don't have to care. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it's true. people <laughs> do care. I just wonder. But maybe I'm the canary in the in the in the underground coal mine. Oh, 
maybe do other people have adaptation yeah, fatigue? That's, that's kind of where I'm going. Am, am I am out on yeah. an island here you know, by myself? Am I, think, I ahead of the curve? Where am I? I am also. I think for me, it also differs on like how faithful are they going to try to be to the source material like the handmaid's tale on hulu has already gone to a much bigger world and all kinds of things happening that don't happen in the book mm-hmm. and so it's a totally different experience like if they're departing from the book experience i am more likely to watch an adaptation than if it's like we're going to faithfully render the book into tv or screen um because in that case i would like to have one version of the story but what they've done like what hulu did with the handmaid's tale where they've built out the world in really interesting ways that's an experience that like it's a rich experience on its own um and i want to have that and also have read the book because that's its own they're two separate rich experiences with with really two different worlds and two different stories i think for me maybe to articulate a little bit differently is I'm not going to be there and excited on episode one for even books and stuff I've heard of. I need, I'm going to need some social proof after it's out that it's good because mm-hmm. there's, a, sure, there's so much fair. to pick from yeah. that, you know, for, I'm trying to think of an example. Well, a good one. Empire Falls. You remember that adaptation of HBO, the Richard Russo novel? It was on HBO. It was a two part yes, adaptation happened, like eight years ago. I was mm-hmm. there ready for that when it came out just because you didn't get stuff like that very often. Now I'm like, ugh. If there was like a third tier John Irving adaptation, I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, yeah, at, no, at one too. point that would have been too. a thing, but now it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. Maybe, you know, like The Mothers by, by um, Britt Bennett, the book I liked, I would watch it if I heard it was good, but I'm not going to show up for episode one. I don't think of that necessarily. I, I would watch what's uh, Everything I Never Told You. I don't know if that one, I haven't read Little Fires Everywhere, so I'm trying to think of ones that I've read like... Everything I never told you, would I be there for episode one? No, but if I heard it was good, I would show up a little bit later. So I, I just have so, my, my choices are so bountiful that I can be pickier, I guess, is what I'm saying. Um, you got mm-hmm. the, 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 the arousal threshold for selecting it is very low <laughs> to use the persuasion. Arousal threshold is 100% the show title. <laughs> well, I'm just saying in the, in the um, science of persuasion and uh, uh, <laughs> buying decisions I'm using. That's, that's a strictly, strictly scientific mm-hmm. term. That's it. That's all. Okay. I've used there. Well, let's go somewhere to less awkward let's... like Sherman Alexie. Um, oh, great. <laughs> two pieces of Sherman Alexie news. One is I, li- I, I wrote um, some, if I do the Saturday Today in Books newsletter for us, and I think I did this last weekend related to this, but they're a indefinite hold on the paperback version of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, which was Sherman Alexie's memoir, which came out last year. Oh, I missed that news. Yeah. um, A book, I guess we just have to say, that both you and I really liked um, at the time. Um, I would not... I'm not officially recommending it. I don't know what I'm doing with it. I mean, whatever. What I do about it doesn't matter. But apparently Alexie himself requested that they they hold it, um, and Hachette agreed um, I don't, I think that's all Oof. we know. That's all mm-hmm. we know at this point. I don't know if that's a smart move. I don't know if it's, I don't know what that move is. I don't know what else you do. It's, at the very least, it's face saving because requesting to hold it yourself is better than an announcement that the publisher decided to halt movement. On is there book any face left to be input. saved here? That's what I guess is my, st- that's why I led it with that one. Cause the next I story mean, is that he declines the current, I mean, okay. eight, Maybe we're not 80 face... women now. Did you see 80? God, maybe not face saving, um, but there's a, as I, as we tried to break out with the stuff about Mike Cole and like the John Scalzi stuff, there is a, there are better and worse ways to 
handle this in public. And I mean, there's not a great way. The great way is don't do this crap and get <laughs> the, and then invent have a DeLorean, to, right? Get Doc right. Brown and get a flux capacitor, um, right? Yeah. But I think pr- being proactive about acknowledging that you know, that your work takes up like this is a couple of things, you know, my work takes up space that other work doesn't take up um, or can't have because my work takes that space. And I have done these things and I'm acknowledging that I have done these things. And like this is it's kind of self-imposed punishment, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is responsible. Like, I guess that's where I am on it is I would like to see people take responsibility for their actions. And when you're talking about writers that have books out in the world saying, you know what, let's halt publication on my paperback. Presumably he was going to have to go on like a paperback tour because this is a big book or was a big book. Um, So that's also let's halt me. (laughs) Let's not send me on NPR for like a six week run (laughs) of publicity. (laughs) Just a pain Um, tour of, uh, but maybe that's what he should do. I mean, maybe he should. No, no, I'm serious. Like maybe, <laughs> no, no, doing a maybe public he have to, tour of, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't. Well, know. a public tour. What if he had to keep all of those interviews, but he wasn't promoting the book? Like that would be satisfying. Um, yeah. You will be answerable for the things that you have done. Maybe this is just optics. Like, may, I don't know what his motives are. So maybe it's just opt- optics. That is the least generous reading, you know, of maybe this is optics and he knows it looks bad to put out a paperback and go on tour for it. But maybe there is a level of responsibility taking, um, or it's crawling into the cave. You're injured. You just want to get the hell out. Sure. Yeah. Maybe it's that too. Um, yeah. Um, not trying to, I'm I'm not trying to noodle over like what's fair mm -hmm. to him and what he deserves. I, I really don't. I just, yeah, this is what's happening and it's in process. Um, and with a new paperback out and a major literary award, it's you know it's as messy in terms of the book publishing industry as you're really going to find mm-hmm. because it's in process. You have to decline a big a Carnegie Medal is a big award. Yep, um, it goes it goes in your obit for someone who writes kids books and young adult uh, young people's literature. Um, yeah, this to me is at least a little bit of a relief. Um, I'm not sure if we mentioned on the show or not, like the conversations that I've had about this are so many at this point that I can't remember where I had, which ones, but I had a discussion with some of the editorial folks about like what happens if you don't have to say you love me gets nominated for a national book award or a Pulitzer and how, how would we be covering those things? And this gives me a little glimmer of hope that like, if the National Book Award Committee had uh, decides to nominate him despite these things, um, he's turned down a Carnegie Medal. Maybe he would be responsible and turn down that nomination as well. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully we won't be in that position. Yeah, and it just makes me wonder about the future history. Is, is he just gone now? I mean, like, is that... I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be or should be. I'm just like, really? Sherman Alexie's just off the, just off the map now. Like, that's what's going to happen. Maybe that's right. I, I just yeah. don't know. Like, there's no precedent as far as I can think of um, in this regard. We're in, of, like, we're in a new land. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, that's it's, right. There's, I don't think there's precedent for these kinds of things on this scale and with this level of response mm-hmm. in any industry really like and we've had some contributors behind the scenes wrestle with like is there a redemption arc or even the possibility of a redemption arc for 
some of these people, maybe there is, I have no idea <laughs> what that would have to look like. Like maybe if Sherman Alexie publicly acknowledges and apologizes for all of this and eventually like writes a book exploring all of it, maybe, but also like you should then donate every penny you make from that book to something. You should not profit from it. Um, I, I don't know. Like I, I think that it's possible he is just off the map and that all of these guys so far are just off the map and do not send us emails about why am I saying all these guys? Because Mm. it's, it's all guys. Um, I'm trying to think in our, in our, in our lifetime, like what the biggest literary scandal was like the James Frey thing, right? Where a million little pieces was basically Oprah recommended a book and then it turned out he lied. Yeah, that's true. But except it's not at all. Um, and James Frey has this weird second, career as like running I mean again it's been a while or, since um, I kept up with James Frey of like this running this Jonah is it Jonah Oh Jonah yeah what, jo- what's what his name his, no, Lehrer I think Jonah Lehrer Jonah Lehrer right who like plagiarized, plagiarized sections of, of a book and he's had book deals since then Yeah didn't sell any books <laughs> but he did get a book deal Um those are transgressions of a literary sort that Mm-hmm. don't you know I, I'm not saying it's of the same scale I'm just trying to think of anything even close to the same solar system in terms of a yeah. public if, shaming uh, you know fall from grace I, situation yeah I think this one of the core pieces of the me too movement is motions toward a public life where there are expectations about decency and appropriate mm. behavior and correct uses of status and privilege um, that are required of people if they are going to hold the public's, like hold a public spot, hold the public's attention, um, be sent on book tours and given awards. And so, like you know, by that measure, you get accused by 80 women of really harmful things. There's like Maybe no penalty box big enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe you are just gone forever. That seems appropriate to me. And that opens up space for someone who's Mm. also someone else who's doing great work and behaving the right way. Like, yeah, it's a, it's an unknown, it's an unknown future. That seems very possible. And anything that's not him just being gone now feels impossible to me right now. doesn't mean it is. It doesn't feel like it's hard to imagine the comeback story and, and what it would entail and how it would be taken. Um, again, it's fresh and it's raw and time is powerful. Um, so in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, who knows what will be, but right at this moment, um, that future in which he is largely rehabilitated into the public literary consciousness seems very hard to imagine. I think that distinction that you drew about transgressions of literary value yeah. versus transgressions essentially of human value mm-hmm. is that's important. Um, you can apologize for the mistake of for the ethical transgression of plagiarizing work. And then you can publish a new book and it can be fact checked right. <laughs> and, you know, and run through things to validate that you are no longer a plagiarist. And then people can make their own decisions about whether this, you know, whether your apology, but whether you have repented, right? Because repentance is twofold. It's being sorry and then going forward in a new way. Um, and 
the this these kinds of transgressions though like it's very difficult to publicly prove that you've done right. the second step. <laughs> you know, you can be sorry, but how do you gain the public's trust back? In this case, the literary reading public, how how would a person gain readers' faith back that he's no longer behaving this way towards women? Because an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm. Interesting, too, to think about it, like the James Frey or the, the Joan Allaire situation is sort of a crime against the reader. Right? Like, right. you've misrepresented what the thing is. So, I guess if you decide as the reader to quote unquote forgive them or move on, that's kind of, it makes sense to me that that's a decision mm-hmm. I could make individually as a reader where this is not about me. This is about a larger pattern behavior and people that I cannot, right. you know, that, that it's not about something done to me necessarily. And so, you, you hold that in abeyance too, that that's a difference that seems to matter somehow. Like, if I know what the deal is with James Frey going in, that feels different than knowing what the deal with Sherman Alexie is going into reading a new book. feels different to me. Yes. Yeah. Meaningfully so. All right. Let's do another sponsor and we'll come back to talk about uh, Harper Lee. All right. Well, I am delighted to be able to talk about this sponsor. It is All Grown Up by Jamie Attenberg. This is a book about a woman named Andrea Bird. Um, who is Andrea Byrne? When her dippy therapist asks the question, Andrea knows that the right thing to say is she's a designer, a friend, a daughter, a sister, but it's what she leaves unsaid that she's alone, a drinker, a former artist, a shrieker in bed, captain of the sinking ship that is her flesh that feels the most true. Everyone around her seems to have a different idea of what it means to be an adult, though. And when Andrea's niece finally arrives, born with a heartbreaking ailment, the Byrne family is forced to re-examine what really matters. Is it going to drive them together or tear them apart? This is told in gut-wrenchingly honest, mordantly comic vignettes. All Grown Up is a breathtaking display of J.B. Attenberg's powers as a storyteller. It's a whip-smart examination of one woman's life. I said when the book came out, it reads like a house on fire, um, and it's just about a woman who lives life entirely on her own terms. Um, One of the, I think, most honest representations in fiction I have ever encountered of what it is like to be um, a woman past like the tender young ages of your young adulthood when you're in your late 20s and early 30s and rolling towards 40 and asking the big questions about who you are, um, what society says a woman is and should be versus how you want to be as a woman in the world. Uh, It's just like, it's brave. It's really candid. It does read like a house on fire. I just loved it so much. I'm delighted um, that they're sponsoring the show this week. It's just generated a ton of print review attention, a ton of social media buzz. Roxane Gay liked it. Megan Abbott liked it. It was a national bestseller. It was on a jillion, a jillion best books of the year lists. If you have not read this book, go pick it up now. It's out in paperback. It's called All Grown Up by J.B. Attenberg. We'll have a link to it in the show notes, and you can find it wherever books are sold. That's being adapted, too. I don't know if you saw that news. And Jamie's writing the script. Man, I'm interested in that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I read this. Love the book, too. Not interested in the adaptation until someone tells me it's good. You can can tell me. I'll be the canary. I volunteer as tribute. You know, I I don't know if this is worth saying, but All Grown Up is also short. That's true. I read it in one sitting. You can read it in one sitting. That's not in the notes, but Mm -hmm. I think this is one of those things what matters to me more than I would have thought. And it's one thing that buying books on my Kindle or whatever, it's just information I don't have. Because like, I find that if I go into Powell's or whatever, and there's books I've been interested in, one of them is pretty short. I'm like, I can get through that, you know? Whereas Mm -hmm. if it's 900 pages, I'm like, oh my God. Like I I might, I might, it's just different. Like it's part of the information gathering process. So Mm -hmm. they should give us a page count 
for these athletes yeah, so people can know. You know, it's relatively short and it reads yeah. like the pacing is just it's compulsively readable, which is a phrase that I don't use very often. I think you just came up um, with that phrase. I never heard it before. I, I don't know. What yeah, you no, mean, that's new to you. Yeah, it's totally new. <laughs> totally just invented that myself. It's not like I stole it from a million book publicists. No, right. um, but I is think it it's unput- very true. Is it, does it, for is it a page turner? Is it unputdownable too? <laughs> Oh, Jeff. I, those are free. You can use those. Why don't we? There. You want to talk about Harper Lee instead? I know it's oh, your favorite. Oh, God. You're reverse trolling me. That was a wicked comeback. <laughs> um, that's like the right cross when I tried the uppercut. Uh, okay. Well, we got some news a couple weeks ago that we didn't that didn't pass the Harper Lee, Harper Lee Meridian, which was the New York Times basically sued to have um, Harper Lee's will unsealed, which was successful. And basically, all the will said was that all of her, all of her belongings and royalties and every, all Harper Lee stuff is now the property of the Harper Lee Trust, and that is sealed. And there's virtually no way to get that unsealed. And our friend Tanya Carter is in charge of that, um, which yeah. we didn't think was worth commenting on because that's kind of I think we. I don't know if we said that, but we sort of assumed that's what happened, right? We didn't right. think there would be anything yeah. interesting in that particular will. This story is interesting because it does affect ongoing work, which is um, Aaron Sorkin's Broadway adaptation of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. And it's being sued by the Lee estate over Sorkin's adaptation. It was a complaint filed in federal court um, arguing that his adaptation deviates too much from the novel and violates the contract which stipulates that the characters and plots must remain faithful to the spirit of the book. Um, chief dispute is a uh, chief comp, uh, dispute is the portrayal of Atticus Finch, which, in the light of Ghost at a Watchman, I think is interesting. Yes. So the complaint is that Sorkin's portrayal of Atticus Finch, who's representing a black man who's unjustly accused of rape presents Finch as a man who begins the drama as, quote, a naive apologist for the racial status quo, a depiction at odds with his purely heroic image in the novel. And I got to tell you, I think this is Tanya Carter's chickens coming home to roost, Mm -hmm. that she published Go Set a Watchman as functionally like a prequel to to Kill a Mockingbird. Which it isn't. Did not, which it is not. It's the <laughs> early version of the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And But if you position it as a prequel, you and Atticus Finch like goes to a clan meeting in Ghost at a Watchman. Like, you see racist behavior out of Atticus Finch in the earliest version of the story or the earliest one that we've seen. Presumably, Aaron Sorkin did not just read To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, while preparing for this. I would assume that he has read Ghost at a Watchman as well and been like, oh, well, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And Tanya Carter, we know, was involved in, she's the one who said Harper Lee was down for the publication of Ghost at a Watchman. And Aaron Sorkin wouldn't have this information about Atticus Finch and also wouldn't have it presented to him as a way that Finch began and then developed. Um, here's a prequel, here's the novel that came later, um, without all of that. Mm-hmm. Also, like, it's, so it's faithful to the spirit of how the book began, um, which, it'll be yeah, interesting to see how this might be beyond the out. scope of the contract, because if the, I mean, who knows what the legal language is, but if it's just To Kill a Mockingbird, going out and say that Harper Lee wrote this other book that you published may not matter. Mm-hmm. Um, it may not. I, I agree with you in that 
sort of the the cultural truth of it is that Atticus Finch is no longer the character that was just into Kill Mockingbird. Now, if their contract is for the adaptation rights just to the things between the pages of the 1961 version mm-hmm. of To Kill a Mockingbird, maybe they have a case. The play shall not uh, derogate or depart in any manner from the spirit of the novel is interesting. Like, what is this? Then it's an argu- it's a literary argument. Like, what is this? Because it's not the words. Yeah, it's it, not exact representation. It's, it's the spirit of the novel. And that's open to interpretation. Yeah, it says, you know, further down in this piece that the lawsuit states that the play should not deviate from the depiction of Atticus in Mockingbird, where he's presented as a defender of racial equality in a divided South. Um, But we don't know what the contract states. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that will be that'll be interesting. I'm curious to hear if we have any like lawyer types Mm -hmm. listening to the show who would have a sense of this. since Watchmen is presented to the public as a prequel, not as the original manuscript, um, does that matter? Does that positioning matter if it had been like, here's an early draft, but we know the final in the final draft, Atticus is good. And that feels to me like a different argument than what Tanya Carter is able to make now because of her own decisions to present Watchmen as a prequel. Mm. That feels like a meaningful distinction to me. Maybe it's not legally, but I would. I'm wondering if we have people who actually know things that could let us know. Um, so that's podcast at bookriot.com. Um, the Mockingbird lawsuit was, this is all uh, an article in the Times. I'll link it in the show notes. Um, the Mark, Mockingbird lawsuit was preceded by a series of letters between the parties as they debated the script. In one letter dated March 5 and released by Mr. Rudin's office, Scott Rudin, the producer of the play, Ms. Carter expressed concern that Atticus in the play is depicted as rude and selfish as well as more confrontational and far less dignified. This Atticus, she wrote, is more like an edgy sitcom dad in the 21st century than the iconic Atticus of the novel. And I think that's interesting because a couple things. One is Atticus as icon is not necessarily the same thing as Atticus on the page. Like there's a way of presenting what Atticus does into Kill a Mockingbird that's an interpretation that's different than the interpretation of like, you know, Gregory Peck. That's also mm-hmm. an interpretation of how he walks, how he acts, how he moves. Like, it's Jeff Daniels is the etiquette. Like, there could be a sadder, more conflicted, more angry version here, which is all. I mean, I think that's. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Is that Gregory Peck's version of Atticus is a version. It is not the right. Atticus Finch, and right. the iconic, dignified Atticus is not necessarily the only way to read that novel. And so, the, I'd be fascinated to see the transcripts like, from this this uh, this case. It's also just. Very inconsistent, I think, to be concerned about preserving the legacy of Atticus Finch when you released a book that reveals him to be a racist. Yeah. Well, and he also says that, you know, um, the characters of Calpurnia and Tom Robinson um, vary from those in the book, which makes sense to me. I don't think you can do an adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird that has the black characters as like the footnotes they are in the book. You just can't. You cannot put that on stage Mm -hmm. today. Um, and uh, above, Sorkin says, you know, you can't you can't produce a play as if the racial politics of America hasn't changed since 1961. You can't do it's a museum piece. It's not what they signed up to do. It's the one they that would be the one they perform on Harper Lee's birthday in Monroeville, Alabama. That's basically right. a museum piece. Which there may be some volume to that. I, I don't know. Go watch the movie if you want that. But this is something else. Um, you know, whatever. I hope they lose. That I hope the Harper Lee estate loses. I hope they lose too. Myself. I, you know what? I hope Tanya Carter. I'm not even calling it the Harper Lee estate. I hope Tanya Carter loses. Um, 
I guess the motive would be here is that the Harper Lee estate is, pr- is trying to protect the golden goose, right? That's what they're trying to do mm-hmm. is like they don't want the wholesome, everyone agrees it's the um, novel we can talk about uncomfortable ways in this very kind of soft focus Gregory Peck way because that is a big business for the Harper Lee estate, which, you know, of course, of oh, course it is. Well, yeah, and they're they're building that whole like halfway amusement park situation oh, in Monroeville. Like there, this is not about protecting this, this precious piece of art from dirty commercialism. <laughs> you know, it's not, mm-hmm. it, it, this, it's very, I think you're very correct that the, here's the golden goose. And if people start thinking of Atticus Finch as a racist, how are we going to have, how are we going to sell tickets to the right. Harper Lee amusement right. park in Monroeville? Who's going to come? And, um, and you're, which, you're not, our, our joint theory of adaptations tends to be these things don't matter these adaptations like there's there's rare that there's one like this that massively alters our understanding of the book itself i mean to kill a mockingbird has to be as impervious to this kind of problem than anything else just think of how many sherlock holmes and shakespeare's adaptations there have been but hamlet is still the thing right the play is Mm -hmm. still the thing uh to quote hamlet about hamlet weirdly um (laughs) that that matters so Probably what's best is what we find with things that come into the public domain is this gives things a new life. Um, I, I think if I were Carter, I'd be concerned about moldering the the uh, the, the play and the novel moldering mm-hmm. as much as I'm pr- pr- bring it into the 21st century, give it new life. Um, but that's that's kind of a separate uh, separate argument. All right, let's move right on. Down. Let's do another story, then I'll do a, another ad. What do you want to do? Spats? Let's stats corner? See. Yeah, let's do some stats corner. One in five. Tell me about audiobooks and American re- listening habits. All right. Our favorite, the Pew Research Center, released yes. numbers this week. I need to that talk to these guys, n- these women, whoever's doing this. The Pew, Ooh, Pew, 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 Pew. I'd like to hear about that. Pew, them. Pew, Pew, Pew. Yeah. Man, I was so punchy that episode. <laughs> <laughs> that was that one of our live shows, I think. It was. Probably the one with lots of cold medicine. Mm-hmm. Um we should talk to the Pew people for like an annotated episode, like the, the statistics of reading. You know you're talking my language. Keep going. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. nearly one in five Americans now listen to audiobooks. This is a trend we've been tracking, the like, huge growth in audiobooks and also how high the ceiling still is um, for audiobook consumption is uh, an ongoing theme in publishing news and on this show. Um, but we're, we're seeing here that about three quarters of Americans have read a book in the past 12 months in any format and print books remain the most popular. 67% of Americans have read a print book in the past year. Print and ebook readers are pretty similar in their shares of the pie in 2017. Uh, these are the 2017 numbers mm-hmm. as they were in 2016. Um, but audiobook reading is growing and nearly 20% of folks um, who read have read an audiobook. Now. 18% it says um, listen to an audiobook in 2018, which seems weird because 2018 ain't over. It I guess it's the reporting right. year. But compared yes. to 2011, 11%. So we're looking at 7% Almost double. raw, well, but you're cool, looking yeah. more like 66% mm-hmm. relative gains. Um, more people listen to an audiobook in 2017 than read an ebook in 2011, which that's that's a number that sticks out. That to me is super interesting. 17% in 2011. And that was, we were just starting the site, and that was kind of the white hot center of ebooks are going to eat the universe. Um, mm-hmm. Ebooks are now holding steady over the last four years at about 28% of people 
will have read an ebook in any given year. Um, it's actually down to 26% now. Down, I mean, that's what's look. The, the the narrative we hear about ebooks is no one's reading them, but the stats show that it's only down like six percent relative to the height of 2014. Again, I don't know if it's libraries or self-published books or what it is, but you don't you haven't seen it fall off a cliff. The other thing you haven't seen fall off a cliff is the number of people reading a book in any format. Um, it's flat basically since 2012 with some variation within it. Um, so I'm not sure. Also, if you would have told me this number for audiobook listenership was much higher, I think I would have believed you too. I don't know if you had oh, asked yeah. me to pick a number, what I would have said. Would I have said yeah, it would have doubled since 2011? Doubling is hard, uh, especially for a long format. Um, but it's it's up sharply over the last two years, which I think we can feel in terms of people mm-hmm. that we that listen to the show, yeah, how we do know, the site, the content we do, book write insiders, contributors, everything. That's else. true. Like just the inputs that I get from people who aren't the white hot center of book readership. Yeah. You know, like we've been audiobook people for a long time. Our contributors and the like diehard book riot readers are more likely to try various formats than just like the average person who reads books. And we talk on the show sometimes about like your dad as a barometer Mm -hmm. for things or like Bob as a barometer for things, somebody who does read like a book or two a month. And in the last year, I guess it has been about a year now, Bob has switched to entirely audiobooks. Mm. Like work got really busy. There's not as much time at home sitting down reading, but he missed books in his life and just started sharing my Audible account. (laughs) And it became like, maybe I'll do this on vacation. Like he's listening to an audiobook on his commute every day. Um, And that feels like it's representative of a meaningful shift when um, someone who is not a casual reader in the sense of just sort of cares about books. Like I think in, if you asked him to note, you know, five of his interests, books would be in the top couple. Mm. Um, like, but you know, not, he's not reading a hundred books a year has shifted to considering audiobooks and now really consuming them as a primary format. I think he's indicative of that trend as well. Here's a question for you. Why isn't the number higher? Like, why is it lower than eBooks? Is that a weird way of putting it? I well, I don't know. Because I kind of feel like the future of digital book consumption you know, actually, is that audio crushes digital, or just eBooks. I, I, I think maybe a possibility. Now that I'm going to verbally process yes. this in real time, because yeah, yeah, that's, that's how Swing we do it. a podcast, it. right? It'll be great. Yeah. Um, is eBooks and print books basically compete for the same space in readers' that's lives? That's what I was it's, thinking. Yeah, you know, I'm going to sit down on the couch. Is it going to be on my iPad or is it going to be a hardcover? Um, but an audiobook takes a different space. So you're either choosing not to sit down on the couch, or I don't know, maybe you sit down on the couch and listen to an audiobook. That's not the story we hear most of the time. Um, so an audiobook goes into your walk or it goes into your commute maybe that you would otherwise spend playing games on your phone. Um, or it goes into your commute where you would otherwise, like Bob used to listen to um, sports radio and now he's listening to audiobooks. Um, so there's it's like a different space. I think audiobooks typically go into the spaces in our lives that we weren't reading before. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and it's like, oh, now I could do now the thing I could do in this open space is a book um, where people have pretty dedicated, it seems to me, reading spaces of sit down, read words on a page or a screen. And the, I think that's right. I, like, my, my, yeah. I have a follow up question for you whenever you're ready. Mm-hmm. Are you ready for it? Go ahead. Yes. Hit me. Do you think that podcasts have helped 
this number oh. or hurt this number? This eight, Would it be higher if podcast didn't exist or would it be lower if podcast didn't exist? I think it's helped. Um, we... I hear from people who were like, you know, I have limited listening time and it's a competition between a podcast and an audiobook for that space. And I feel that in my life too. Like I really only listen to stuff when I'm in the car. Um, and it, it is, is it an audiobook today or a podcast? But podcasts got people to consume audio content in places that they weren't consuming audio content before. Um, and it was like, you can listen to a sports podcast while you're in the car even if you don't like what's on your local sports radio, mm-hmm. like here's an option. Um, maybe you don't care about NPR, but you want to listen to interesting interviews. Here's Mark Marin. You know, there's there were lots of choices there um, to fill this to fill spaces that audio already filled. Like you would listen to the radio, now you're listening to a podcast. You were taking a walk, listening to music, now you're listening to a podcast. People were listening to podcasts, like at the gym. I remember hearing about this. Oh, I listen to podcasts while I work out. Um, And I think that comfort with like going to fill a space with audio content has, I I think it's helped people Mm -hmm. being like, what else could I listen to? What else could I put into my ears in this time? Yeah, I I would agree. I just am curious about the sort of relationship of if you put them into the same bucket, the the bucket is something like on-demand non-music audio content, basically, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's what it is. And that's a number... I would like to see the trajectory over the last 10 years, the number of hours people are spending listening to podcasts and or audiobooks, and uh, just in general, the Venn diagram would be really interesting. Like maybe, maybe there are two separate circles of people, the podcast listeners and the audiobook listeners, and they have just grown up side by side. But wouldn't it be interesting if that Venn diagram is close to a circle and people who are listening to one are also yeah. listening to another? Or is it just I, but eating I no radio? Idea. Like what radio hours spent listening yeah, to terrestrial is, radio right, or, or right. satellite radio? Because like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if people like I have, I remember distinctly like when I first started getting into podcasts is before my son Ames was born and I was repainting the room that would become his bedroom and it took me like nine hours. Mm-hmm. I'm by myself. It's in the middle of the night. And I had heard This American Life on the radio before, but my friend Ken was like, you know, you can get that as a podcast. I was like, I'd heard a podcast, but I thought it was like, I don't know. I didn't even know what it was. Like, oh, that's cool. So I can just listen to it. Oh, cool. And I listened. I ripped off like six of them in a row and I was in. Um, and it was that, is, is becoming a thing where you just thought about doing it, I think is the, the thin end of the wedge there. And both audiobooks and podcasts, you have to be proactive. You've got to find them. You've got to subscribe to them. You've got to buy them. You've got to get them onto your phone. It's not exactly simple. It's not complicated, but it's not the same as getting an email, right? It's not the same as taking a picture. You actually have to do something a little bit with it. So I'm curious about how they've they've been mutually reinforcing, but also compete for the same ear hours, I think is a fascinating phenomenon uh, myself. Let me do another sponsor and we'll wrap up with some interesting bookstore news. All right, where am I? I put my sponsored content thing away, and here we go. And now I'm vamping the neighbors. I just this has a creepy house on the cover. I did it. It was in a spot for book riot deals the other day. So it's mm-hmm. the neighbors by Hannah Hannah Marie McKinnon. It's 1922, and Abby is responsible responsible for a car crash that kills her beloved brother. It's a mistake she can never forgive, so she pushes away Liam, the man she loves most. 20 years later, Abby's husband, Nate, is also living with a deep sense of guilt. He was the man who pulled her to safety, the man who couldn't save her brother. When a twist of fate brings Liam and Abby back into each other's lives, they they pretend never to have met, yet cannot resist the pull of the past. 
nor the repercussions of the terrible secrets they've been carrying. This is a breakout voice in a best-selling genre. Hannah Marie McKinnon, uh, her domestic suspense is a heartbreaking, honest portrayal of a family on the edge of disaster. It's a perfect, fa- perfect read for fans of Big Little Lives or The Couple Next Door, an edge-of-your-seat page-turner that will keep you guessing until the very end. That is The Neighbors by Hannah Marie McKinnon. Thank you so much to them for sponsoring this show. All right, let's do five. Let's do three minutes on two bookstore stories. Uh, let's start with the weird one. The bookstore okay. staffed only with robots in China. <laughs> I've been to bookstore yes. staffs, uh, bookstores that have been staffed entirely by robots, but it was like in a mall in um, suburban Kansas City. But uh, it's a different kind of robot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're going to open in Beijing later this year, offering a 24-hour day service. It has no regular human employees. That's a weird, that is a weird phrase. Like <laughs> As they opposed have, to... That, like cyborgs or irregular human employees. <laughs> um, all customers have to register with their real names using their WeChat account and have their faces scanned before entering. This is not at all dystopian. This is the least dystopian bookstore I've ever heard of. <laughs> Uh, through storing all the users' purchasing information, the store can offer precise and humanized, humanized. book suggestions oh. to all of its customers with robot, quote-unquote, staff touted as the key feature of the store. Oh, my gosh. The, the story here, I can't... I've, what is the robot? like? Is what, it like Rosie from the Jetsons? I don't get it. Because like, like, it's not one of those Amazon Go convenience stores where like there's just no employees. It's just they're taking pictures of every... Your milk and your yogurt and your cart and your you know gait yeah. analysis and all this. Like... I'm going to need some pictures here of like, what is the robot? <laughs> I just don't, I don't get the robot thing. And I definitely right, don't want like, my face scanned walking into the bookstore. That's a horrible <laughs> nightmare. Hellscape. Like, also, I guess my question really is like, why do you even need the robots? Like there's, there's a branch of, <laughs> there's yeah. a branch of the NYPL in, in New York that has some like automated, it's like a train basically, but it's automated book delivery from you like know. deep in the stacks, you know, like that the books get retrieved and then delivered to you on a conveyor belt functionally. Mm-hmm. So they could do that. Like it could just be mechanized of here's the book I want, but they're trying to do this personalized recommendation thing. So does the robot like roll up to you and say in robot voice, like Jeff O'Neill, <laughs> these are your recommendations. That would be incredible. <laughs> like, also that I would like, run so it, fast. <laughs> Oh my God, right? This is just a nightmare. <laughs> this is horrible. Or is it the robot just like rolls the recommended books to you and it's just they're delivered by a machine? Like I need to, is this artificial intelligence that tries to interact like a human? I don't know. Or I just have many questions and I don't want to answer any of them for myself. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to do 20 of these, 20 of these in Beijing. First of all, that's a lot of bookstores. Second of all, I know Beijing is huge, but just anything you could do 20 of just sort of all at once. Um, They say that staffless convenience stores and supermarkets are becoming more common throughout the city, while around half of the 3,000 new convenience stores expected to open Beijing before 2020 will offer 24-hour service. So this like contactless, um, staffless shopping experience is is pretty interesting. yeah, I don't get when this opens. We're gonna need some like drone footage or something. Like go in there with. <laughs> right. uh, we're gonna need something because like, 
you go, you walk in, you have your face scanned, and then what happens? Like, what's the next? I, I can't even picture. Like, what's the next? Do you look at a book and they're like, "Oh, I saw you looked at this book," and like seventeen robots come shooting at you with like carts full. <laughs> like, I I don't understand what's going on. What if on. they compete? What if it's like a hand selling showdown? Right, because what robots. I want is fighting robots. <laughs> that that always turns out well. Basically, all science fiction taught me that. Oh God. You know. <laughs> You, you know, you, you know, it would be just like me to meet my end by competing <laughs> recommendation robots. Like, you know what, Jeff? He 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 lived as he he died as he lived, sort of trying out new book features, and Your it finally dying cost him his life. Like, this recommendation is accurate, but it's not precise. <laughs> <laughs> the Goodreads recommendation was just as good. <laughs> let's end there. Well, let's. I want to talk about this George or this other bookstore that's selling its um, bookstore to its employees. But let's do that another time. Yeah. We're too goofy okay. now. Does that sound good? <laughs> That's, well, uh, you're, we're not going to get better than battling robot hand selling. No, we're not. We're, it's it's uh, yeah, uh, man versus a machine to the death. Which of you can give me the goldfinch the fastest? <laughs> In a world where <laughs> books are sold by robots. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Is That'd it Friday? Be, it's Friday. <laughs> it would be awesome, though, if like Amazon was finally defeated by like book selling robots. Like That was the thing. It's like, Bezos <laughs> like, I didn't see it coming. <laughs> That's our show. Thank you guys so so, much for listening. That's it. (laughs) Have a good one.